So just as a reminder, uh, this week we are in week three of Advent and we are turning towards home uh, to take Advent on its own terms. As you remember, we've talked a lot about sometimes we, we like to skip Advent to head right to Christmas. And don't get me wrong, I love Christmas as much as the next guy. But we have this space here that seems somewhat related, but not quite. And so we're wrestling a little bit about, well, what does it mean? to take Advent on its own terms. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I love seeing all these kids up here, right? They're doing a really good job. Listen, that was not an easy passage. And they like, you know, Logan knocked it out the park, man. Way to go. Now, if you love this, just wait until you get to see the video. It's coming up in a really short period of time. You just have to trudge through this sermon, and then it's that you've got all the joy of a wonderful Christmas play brought to you on the screen. And the chaos of that night, if any of y'all were here, will have you know that it really was a lot of joy to make this video. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and I want to mention, too, well, you know, we've got a lot of names. Wyatt up there, who runs faithfully our AV system, did a wonderful job helping me with shooting some of the videos. So I want to give him a personal shout-out and a thanks. Um, and here's my hope, and I'm sure it's yours, too, that this time, this wonderful moment where we have these kids here and they are teaching each of us the good word, is going to go from a joy and playfulness and it will continue to grow and mature in them so that they have a long and faithful journey with God. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, we're not hoping that they do this for a week and then we say, okay, well, good luck. Uh, no, we want them to grow. But how is often the difficult question. And if we look at the evidence right now, the church isn't always doing so well at its task. Quantitatively, just looking at the numbers, the younger you are, the less likely you are going to be at church. And qualitatively, and this is something that's really personally struck me this week, uh, the final podcast episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill came out this week about the aftermath of Mars Hill, which was this, you know, for people my age, this like, mecca of late Gen Xer, early millennial Christendom with Mark Driscoll at the helm, and it chronicles the collapse of that church. And to hear the last part of it was heartbreaking because you heard the aftermath of young Christians and what it meant to deal with the collapse of a church. And that's on top of hearing more stuff about Liberty University, all these paragons of Christianity growing up, and how it feels like they're kind of collapsing in and of themselves. And in truth, I wonder if what we've offered our younger adults in church in the last few years to wrap their minds around, wrap their lives around, what have we offered? At times we've placed the blame of decline on their shoulders, that it's our fault that people aren't showing up in the pews. Other times, we blame them for bad theology. There was, if you remember, back in May, I talked about an Arizona Christian University study that said that millennials and Gen Zers had bad theology, that they, their worldview was wrong. It was not biblical. And certainly, so many stories of hurt and of trauma and abuse are rife in the church. 
I hate to be dour on a Godette, a joyful Sunday, but I want that joy to continue. I want it to last longer than one Sunday. I want that joy to become movement and to become something more than just being up here on a Sunday, but a whole way of life for our children. They become teenagers who are thoughtfully considering what's going on in their life, developing the critical thinking skills in their worldview as they go to college to make the best decisions they can, not because we told them to, but because they see it as valuable in their own right. I want this joy that we see here today to last a lifetime. But it seems for better or for worse, many churches have worked to provide a comfortable product to consume, low-risk community that will not raise the hackles of the backs of those who will give most to keep the church sustained. As long as I don't make the check givers too upset, then we'll be fine. And if there's too much deviation from that plan, there are consequences. And so, instead of clamoring and shaping oneself to the culture, Well, for a lot of folks my age and younger, they just sort of give up. They say, I don't really need this much anymore. And the problem is John kind of forces our hand to have this conversation. If we're going to look at this gospel, we have to start right here because, again, a bad way to get your sermon started is to call the people who are in the crowd a brood of vipers. Right? That is just not... Like, all right, I'm willing to deal with some stuff, but brood of vipers is a step too far. John is literally talking to the people that are coming to him to get baptized. These were folks from all around the region, his buddies, his compatriots, all across the region that he was preaching to. And brood of vipers at that time was often used to refer to Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, non-people of God at the time. But let's not presume here that this is just Gentiles. In fact, John goes the extra step to tell the ancestors of Abraham that just because they had the birthright didn't mean that they could claim whatever was coming. These were people who had the benefit of entitlement. These were literally the people of God. But they couldn't anymore just stand on that alone. Friends, we cannot just think because we have the right pedigree, we've prayed the right prayers, we've created the system, we enforce the rules that we could just wander in and just be baptized and not escape what may be coming, that there is something happening with this Messiah who is to come. Power and control no matter what shape it takes, will never be enough to overcome the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, John offers that we need to have fruits worthy of repentance. And if you remember, I talked about this word last week. Repentance, metanoia. The idea of doing a U-turn in your life to say, you know what, the direction I've been going probably isn't going to work anymore. And so with a little bit of regret of how I've operated in the past, I'm willing to turn around and go a different direction. A complete change of the self that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and regret 
over former behavior and dispositions. John is inviting each one of us today that we need to deny the entitlements based on who we are and be willing to change our ways. Now, I actually think that this whole brood of vipers line actually elicited what could have been the best response. You know, no one got up and left. They said, well, what do we do, John? And John's response is simple. Do good and love others. This is the greatest commandment in action before Jesus even got on the scene. This is what's so incredible about this Advent moment. Before Jesus has even started his ministry, the ideas that he is encouraging us to live are already taking shape. Do good and love others. If you have enough, give some to others. If you have two coats, right? Now, it's not saying, well, you take all of my coats, right? You still have enough for yourself. You have one coat, but if you have two, you go ahead and give the other one to someone who has none. John is inviting people to provide for the basic needs of their community. And moreover, John is inviting these people not to take advantage of one another systemically or economically, even the tax collectors. Now, I'm sorry if there's any of you in this room who have a background in finance or have been tax collectors in the past. You get ragged on a lot in Scripture. But I wonder if we thought more broadly about this word. In Hebrew, the related Hebrew word was one that also meant to force to work. And how many of us in our lives have been in positions of authority over others or have been in a position where we had someone in authority over us? Maybe you have been a boss of people before. Maybe you've been a manager. Maybe you have been a teacher. Maybe you've been a pastor. And we all know the stories of supervisors who take advantage of us and our labor. Instead, John invites us to collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. This word can also mean instructed. So not only might it offer economic relief, but it also means that we don't require more of people than what they are possibly able to do. That maybe part of what is to come is a balance of work and rest of labor and refreshment. And let's not ignore here the soldier, the Roman soldier who's amongst the crowd. Those folks that we would imagine would be on the periphery are the ones that are asking the most pointed questions of what to do when this coming Messiah is here. These were likely Jewish soldiers who were conscripted, conscripted into the Roman army, and they were the governmental representatives to the people. And John just says, you don't extort them. Don't take advantage of them. This word here is an allusion to shaking fiercely, right? Don't turn people upside down and steal their lunch money, for goodness sakes. John is asking them, don't use violence. Don't lie about people. Don't blackmail 
each other. Be happy with what you have. Because when you're in power, when you're the one who calls the shots, when you are the one that does have the say-so to determine what the rest of the church does, well, it is so easy to push around the weakest. It is so easy to say, as our children are being you know, a little extra boisterous in the back of the, chat, in the, back of the sanctuary, to say, you know what, I just I wish those kids would be quiet. I'm trying to worship here. So easy to do that. And there's one thing that is not here, in case you hadn't noticed, it's being concerned about what the other guy has. You know, we should only give the coat to the person who has none, only if we think they really deserve it. Only feed that person if they're working in order to see that they really deserve it. Friends, to give with strings doesn't seem to be fruit worthy of repentance at all. It's just entitlement by another name. It's power by another source. And that may be worse than giving at all. So, of course, there will be fine lines between care and enablement, but that's not what we're talking about here. Sometimes we need to not give one thing, but we need to give something. It seems too much like a brood of vipers to say, well, we'll give as so long as you meet our requirements. It reflects our own entitlement and our willingness to judge someone else to determine who's worthy and who isn't. This is why, for instance, as we collected all of those blankets over the last few weeks, that they're up there, and there's no sign that says, only take them if you're poor. Only take them if you really are cold. No, we said from the beginning in the mission committee, and I think it went forward from there, is to say, we don't care who takes the blanket. We're just glad that they do. If someone wants a blanket, we should just give it to them. We had like 70 of them in here. We didn't have just two. We could offer 69 other people a blanket. You as a church, dear friends, are living fruit worthy of repentance in that moment. And maybe you didn't even realize it, but this is exactly this exercise we did to give away blankets for those who are cold, irrespective of whether they're really cold, is precisely what John is talking about today. But of course, this can come further, and this is where we come back to those who might be on the periphery, spiritually, religiously, and looking in and saying, maybe I'd like to be a part of that. These fruits worthy of repentance are not just for the poor. It's also the, well, if you look the way I do, or you have the same politics I do, or you marry the same person I would, or you're a little loud in the back, kids. Should we do that? Should we offer that to the youngest and the weakest and the most vulnerable, no matter what they look like, we ought to be reminded that truly the axe is right at the foot of the tree. And in that case, maybe it would be all right 
for some trees to fall. After all, there's always good reason for pruning. If any of you have gardened long enough, you know sometimes you've got to cut things down to the stump in order to ensure the long-term growth. Friends, connecting action with gospel is at the core of justice, which is not just a buzzword, but everything that Jesus came into the world for. In just a short chapter coming up in chapter 4, we hear Jesus say the same things, announcing his ministry, and he nearly gets ran off a cliff for it. Spoiler alert. But interestingly enough, this seems to be what younger adults are interested in when it comes to the church. Springtide Research, which is a, a, a nonprofit organization that looks at the religious life of young adults, says that many young adults, and I mean under the age of 30, are spiritually active but feel like the social issues they're hoping the church will take on, they don't feel like they care about them. And the disparity between what these young adults feel is important and the response of the church is massive. The perceived concern difference is in the double digits. Our own community, as we surveyed our San Marco area, you know what the top four things people are looking for in a church? Warm and friendly encounters, quality sermons, opportunities to develop personal relationships and opportunities for volunteering in the community. Friends, if you wanted to know what people wanted in church, they just want to feel like they matter. They want to feel like it's not just one Sunday that they get carted out and that that's it. But that we care about the whole person. These two facts together might invite us to become a church that stands for something concrete. To not just have one blanket drive for whoever needs a blanket, irrespective of their need, but to live a whole life like that. And to say, this is who we are as a church. And again, it may mean upsetting some folks. John, two verses later, is in jail in this passage. For these words. But the fundamental question I think before us as we celebrate these children and as we think about what's to come and we try to take this Advent season on its own terms and not just rush to Christmas, I think the question that is before each and every single one of us is this. What is it that we want? What do we want to do? This is not a passive question, one that we say, oh, that sounds cute, and then we leave and we go on. But it's a question that demands a response from us. Be awake, Jesus says at the beginning of Advent. Make a choice. Be decisive. And my guess is, backed up on the data, that given the choice, we would choose to be a church constantly bearing fruits of repentance, not hanging on its own birthright, and sharing regardless of need. That these children are as much at the center of this church as every single one of you are.
and that the children that are out there, God's beloved children, who are desperately looking for a place to feel loved, are right at the center here as well. And friends, thanks be to God that Jesus is going to come to us regardless, because that is the grace that is offered at Christmas. But I truly believe that a church that is bearing fruits of repentance and not hanging on its birthright is exactly the church that is worthy of welcoming the Christ child in its presence. I wonder what it's like to hear John's words continue to reverberate in our head as we celebrate the newborn king come to save us all. Thanks be to God.